As we edge closer to December the 31st, concerns are starting to amplify over how data transfers will take place between the EU and the UK after Brexit. This week I speak to Ben Rapp, an expert on EU-UK data flows who heads the UK's largest data privacy consultancy, Securis, to get an insight into what could be in store for the future of EU-UK digital trade. Welcome to Euractiv's Digital Brief podcast, where we bring you a specially curated tech story from the week in the world of EU politics and policy. For a full breakdown of all the most important stories over the past seven days in this patch, sign up to my free newsletter or take a look at it online at Euractiv.com. My name is Samuel Stolton, and this is Euractiv's Digital Brief podcast. This episode is powered by Facebook. Working together is more important than ever in the fight against COVID-19. At Facebook, we're working with nearly 100 governments and organizations globally, including the World Health Organization and European Center for Disease Control, to distribute authoritative COVID-19 information on our platforms. Get the full story at about.fb.com Europe. I'm very pleased to be joined by Ben Rapp, an expert on EU-UK data flows, who heads the UK's largest data privacy consultancy, Securis. Welcome to the show, Ben. Hello, Sam. Nice to meet you. Thanks so much for uh, joining me this afternoon. Uh, Let's get straight into it then with the current state of play. We know that the EU has been assessing the UK's data adequacy for some months now ahead of the end of the Brexit transition period. What's the latest as we move closer to December the 31st? Uh, I mean, basically, the latest is a staggering absence of real information. Uh, We know that adequacy is being considered. We know there have been some closed doors meetings about it, but we don't have a direction of travel. We don't know whether adequacy is in some way directly linked to a prospective Brexit deal or not. And there's certainly no certainty of adequacy being granted before the transition period ends at 11pm UK time on the 31st of December, which really isn't very far away now. Okay, and what are the potential ramifications here for digital trade should the UK be refused data adequacy for EU standards? If we definitely don't get data adequacy, if there's no fudge, then the UK becomes a third country like any other. And that means that any transfer from the EEA to the UK, so this includes the rest of the European Economic Area, will have to be legitimised in a more complicated way. So there will basically be hoops that you have to jump through if you want to send personal data from any EEA country to the UK. That's got a bunch of implications. It creates significant bureaucratic drag in Europe, which obviously is a disincentive for people to do this work when it's easier for them to find a partner to share the data with who is in Europe or in an adequacy country. It puts a burden on UK, what are called data importers, so anybody who might be receiving data from the EEA, to do a bunch of things to prove that they are a suitable recipient. Because if we don't get adequacy, it will be because predominantly there is a feeling that the UK's state surveillance mechanism, the Investigatory Powers Act, is has too much overreach. And so people who are going to be receiving data in are going to have to show that in some way they can protect that data from the IPA and provide the same safeguards that would apply to the data if it stayed in the EU. The UK has a very significant data service economy. I mean, on one estimate, it's about a quarter of GDP. And that kind of friction 
that kind of incentive for EU companies to look for an EU partner is going to have an impact on the UK's ability to carry on exporting data-driven services. The other point is the UK has historically been a significant centre for corporate activity. So if you think about a multinational that wants to run, for example, human resources as a global shared service, and therefore deal with data on their employees from all over the world in the UK, that's been historically something of a feature of the way that multinationals have headquartered themselves. In a circumstance where we don't have, adequ have adequacy, bringing that employee data across from the EEA into the UK to do that HR function is going to be not impossible, but more expensive, more time consuming, more bureaucratic. And there will be a temptation to move that processing activity into the EEA because the UK government has at least so far unilaterally said that exporting data from the UK to the EEA will be okay. There was a unilateral grant of adequacy. That could be reviewed, but right now it creates an incentive for organisations to move significant processing activity into the EU. Mm. And you just um, referenced the UK's Investigatory uh, Powers Act there. Um, and I'd like to ask you um, whether when we speculate on the safety of EU personal data in UK hands in the context of various European court rulings that have stated the UK's surveillance regime breaches fundamental rights, how much do you envisage these types of rulings uh, will play into the UK's potential adequacy decision? I think it's a very significant feature. I mean, at the moment, the UK's primary data privacy reg regulation, the UK Data Protection Act, is the same as the GDPR. So we have the same regulatory framework. We have an independent regulator, however you may feel about the ICO's performance, which is one of the other key tests, and we remain a democracy. So if you think about the things that the Commission is supposed to consider in Article 45, Paragraph 2, we can tick most of the boxes and then you get to the IPA, and the IPA has been ruled illegal or unlawful by the European Court of Justice. And it's a very similar problem to the one that ended up with the US Privacy Shield partial adequacy scheme being revoked in July. And that was also around government surveillance and you know, warrantless uh, intrusion into data that wasn't specific to a data subject, uh, over-retention, over-sharing of data, a whole range of, of things that these surveillance regimes do. And so it would be peculiar for the EU to grant adequacy to the UK, having taken it away from the US, when the view of the ECJ on both countries is very similar. I think then you would see the US coming back to the EU and saying, hang on a minute, why have you given it to the UK while taking it away from us when we basically behave in the same way? Mm -hmm. um, and you mentioned there the UK's Data Protection Act, obviously at the moment um, enacting uh, the GDPR. But of course, as part of the UK's national data strategy, Boris Johnson has, shall we say, threatened in the past maybe to liberalise the UK's data regime and adopt more of an innovative approach. Uh, the Commission has said for their part that they will take these types of comments into consideration uh, with regards to their eventual adequacy decision. Um, how much do you think that Johnson could weaken UK data protection protocols as part of the new national data strategy? It's a really interesting question. I mean, the national data strategy is not terribly well articulated at the moment. It, it seems mostly aspirational rather than functional. But there are all sorts of opportunities to weaken these protections in a variety of ways. One is by increasing the ability of the state to get access to data. 
there's a thing going on also in the EU called the Data Governance Regulation, which is also aimed at encouraging people to make their data more openly available to encourage a connected economy. But the attitude behind the regulations and the EU has gone all the way to a draft bill, whereas the UK is still at the kind of strategy white paper stage, is quite different. And the EU is still absolutely focused at its heart on protecting your Article 8 of the CFR privacy rights. And the UK seems to be feeling, you know, that, that really privacy is a kind of bureaucratic drag on commercial freedom. And wouldn't it be nice if companies could play fast and loose with people's data in a, in a more thoroughgoing way? And I think there is a danger of the UK looking at the American economic experience of the last 20 years, thinking that that explosion in the US digital economy has been driven by the absence of federal privacy regulations and the degree to which there's open access to data and an expectation that data will be shared and thinking that somehow a UK digital economic miracle could happen as a result of that kind of liberalization. I think that given that the US seems to be traveling the opposite direction, you'll know that California has just passed the second of its increasingly stringent privacy laws um, and that there is a thing called US Safe Data, which is a, a, a fairly interesting US federal privacy regulation that's been put in front of uh, the House at the moment for consideration. It would be very odd now, I think, for the UK to be thinking, oh, let's turn the clock back to the kind of Wild West of 20 years ago and hope that we can create a Silicon Valley somewhere. And uh, just to come back to the point on the UK's Data Protection Authority, the Information Commissioner's Office there, um, it, the GDPR highlights uh, and makes very clear indeed that in order for any form of adequacy to be agreed upon, um, a other country must prove that its Data Protection Authority um, can live up to EU standards. How do you reflect on the performance of the ICO over recent years? It's a tough job and an under-resourced one, and they're not the only regulator that's come in for significant criticism. I think I would probably, I'd say two things. One is there's been an overfocus in the ICO on uh, a narrow set of targets. So they put an awful lot of effort into the Cambridge Analytica scandal, and that took up energy that I think could have been directed elsewhere, particularly when what they ended up with was not a terribly compelling outcome. And then they spend a lot of their time processing what you might call a pecker peccadillo. So the pecker is the Privacy and Electronic Communications Regulation and basically deals with spam email and spam SMSs. Uh, and a significant part of the ICO's effort seems to be trying to find people who've sent out unsolicited text messages. Those companies then go bust uh, and phoenix under a new name and the fines are never paid. Um, so I'm not sure they take the same strategic view on regulation that some of the European regulators have been taking. But really, the criticisms come from this year. Uh, one of the tests of whether a regulator is independent is the extent to which it holds a government to account. So not just the private sector organisations within its purview. And I think the ICO's response to the way the UK government behaved, certainly at the beginning of the COVID pandemic, was feeble for want of a better word. We know that the UK started off running its uh, test and trace program, its contact tracing program without a necessary DPIA. We know that uh, the UK government has said a number of provably false things about how data privacy regulation interacts with health data in the context of pandemics and the ICO has been completely silent. We also know that it has hugely reduced some very significant fines that it had suggested it was going to levy 
against a couple of major breaches. And in, in doing that, it took account of, sort of COVID and the economic circumstances. And you couldn't help feeling that there was a sense that government had lent on it to say, please don't bust these companies in the midst of a pandemic. And while that might seem laudable from an economic perspective, it sends a message that privacy is less important than any number of other factors. And that hasn't been a feature of European regulators who've been a lot more muscular, uh, particularly actually in the area of, of COVID and COVID data collection. And I think that's an area of divergence that will be worrying the Europeans. Uh, with regards to your role with Securis, you work with businesses in the UK in terms of preparation for the new process of transferring data between the EU and the UK. What are their sentiments as we edge ever closer to the end of the year? It's interesting. We, I mean, most of our practice is global and we work with very large organisations. And, and for them, a lot of it is about internal data flows and also looking at their supply chain, what their kind of complex global flows look like. And I think when we started talking about the risks of inadequacy at the beginning of this year, there was a sense that, that we were being slightly Cassandra-like and, and doom-laden and it was going to be fine. Um, we started giving more detail about what you should do uh, round about the beginning of September. And we've really had a lot of interest pick up recently as people recognise that this is genuinely going to be a problem. That's exacerbated by anybody who's looked at what the particularly German regulators have been saying about the Schrems judgment. The Schrems 2 judgment happened in July and the last time an adequacy framework was removed, there was a sort of unofficial transition period where everyone went, well, yeah, safe harbour's gone, we're going to do something about it, don't worry. Um, when Privacy Shield, the replacement for safe harbour for transfers to the US, was removed in July, some of them, Germany is federal, so you get a bunch of German regulators, and some of the German regulators, mostly Berlin, almost immediately started telling German companies to repatriate data that they'd sent to the US and have been going on about this ever since. And I think our customers are alert, particularly those with European exposure, to the likelihood that European regulators will act quickly if there is a no adequacy Brexit, um, because they need to be seen to be enforcing this since this issue of particularly mass surveillance impinging on data subject rights has been raised twice by the ECJ in the same year. And finally, Ben, putting you on the spot here, how confident are you that the EU will come up with an adequacy decision before the end of 2020? Personally, very unconfident. I mean, there are much bigger political considerations at work here. The thing about adequacy is that it's set out in the GDPR in some detail. It's quite an elaborate process. It normally takes, well, at least five years to get adequacy from, from starting from somewhere. Uh, South Korea has been in the adequacy pipeline for five years. So unless it's fully woven into a, you know, a complicated regulatory alignment trade deal that would make it acceptable intrinsically, doing it separately is not going to happen before the end of the year. So if there's, a no, if there's no deal, there will be no adequacy. I think if the deal is a weak one, then adequacy is also quite a useful political lever. So what we might see is what was just rumoured this week, that there's some talk of a six-month temporary data transition period, a bit like extending the existing Brexit transition period, only more so, to allow for the continued flows of data on the basis of, of adequacy while something is worked out. And that something might be a fudge, a bit like Privacy Shield or Canada's Pipeda, where it's a partial adequacy for some circumstances. 
And the danger for people like me in, in advising clients is that we don't know what that partial adequacy might cover. So we are certainly advising our clients to work on the basis that there will be no adequacy because nothing else is adequately prudent. And a big thank you there for Ben Rapp of Securis for joining us in this week's episode. That's all we've got time for this time around. Please remember that online with us you can get a comprehensive breakdown of all the tech stories in the EU politics and policy domain with my free digital brief newsletter. Sign up online today and don't forget to also subscribe to this podcast which is available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher and Amazon Music. I've been Samuel Stolton and thanks for listening. Thank you.